This is Lindrotten from the House of Literature. I have a short message for all of you listeners. Our wonderful host and co-creator Lynn Ullman is currently taking a break from the podcast to figure out how to proceed with her half-finished novel. So in this episode, you will meet the British Somali author Nadifa Mohammed in conversation with the French writer Edouard Louis. You can read more about Nadifa and the other guest moderators in our show notes. Stay safe and let the world in through our podcast. In a way, there is nothing as violent as culture. And and sometimes it can be even worse than the violence of, of money. Because in the, the violence, like, culture is defined in itself by the gap between people who have it and people who don't have it, you know? And um, so people have access to literature and people don't have. People have access to theater and people don't have. People have access to opera and people don't have. And, and, and so the tr- truth of culture is always hidden in this, in this gap between, between the ones who have access and the ones who don't have access. You just heard the voice of the French author, Edouard Louis, who was my guest on this episode of How to Proceed. In this episode, he talks about writing for your enemies, Black Lives Matter, Toni Morrison, and ghosts at the table. And as you might hear, I am not Lynn Ullman, who created this podcast together with the House of Literature. My name is Nadifa Mohammed, and I'm one of the guest moderators in this season. I am thrilled to be talking today to Edouard about reading and writing, art and creativity, and the world we live in right now. Edouard Louis is the author of three critically acclaimed books of fiction, The End of Eddie, History of Violence, and Who Killed My Father. All three novels have been translated into numerous languages and been adapted for the stage. Edouard Louis has been a personal favourite of mine ever since I read his first novel, not just because of the originality of his writing, but also because of his brutal, radical honesty and the gritty realism that resonates with the times that we live in. There is something dramatic about his writing. He writes poignantly about sexuality and politics, about class and cruelty, language and memory, in sentences that are clean, precise, luminous, playful, beautiful. He dissects all of his characters with the same forensic eye, while simultaneously portraying them with immense vulnerability, warmth, and an understanding for how someone becomes who they are, and how we are all shaped by our circumstances. And I am so happy to be talking with him today. Hi, Edouard. Welcome to the How to Proceed podcast. How are you? Uh, I'm fine. How are you? (laughs) I'm not bad. I'm not bad. (laughs) That's something. Where are you exactly? Uh, I'm in Paris. I'm uh, in my apartment and I'm on my uh, kitchen table, the one where I, I, I write. I have a little, you know, I have a little office where I should be writing. Mm-hmm. Like I bought it purposefully in order to write, but uh, I happen to always work on the, on the kitchen table and that's where I am now. <laughs> Why do you think that is? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I'm like many people, I don't really like working. I, I love doing nothing. I'm the laziest person on earth. 
And so I always have to 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 like um, fool myself and pretend I'm not really writing. So to do it on the kitchen table like this, it seems not like a like, not like a ceremony, you know. Yes. It's less like work in a way. So I always try to yeah to 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 fool myself. And so sometimes it's at the cafe, sometimes it's at my kitchen table, sometimes it's on my sofa. But uh, I don't know how you feel about it. But to work every day at the same office for me is, uh, makes me anxious because I I have the feeling that I'm really going to work and and even if it's what i do i i pretend i prefer to to, to not tell the truth to myself <laughs> does it give you performance anxiety in a way yes but 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 most of all it gives me a, a fear of, of work and of doing and of, of of doing the same thing i would i would love to have a a new life every day and sometimes it makes me anxious to to know that I go to my table and I write again and again every day, that makes me very anxious. You know, I'm very, I'm very jealous of, uh, of happy writers. I know. I know some people who, like Simone de Beauvoir, she describes it in her memoir, or, or I guess Joyce Carol Holtz, who writes so much. There are people who, who, who love writing and they are happy to go at the writing table every day. And, and to be honest, and it's not, I'm not complaining because writing is what I do, but... Uh, but I can't say that I, 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 I can't say that I like it. I can just say that I'm so bad at anything else, and uh, uh, I hope I'm a little bit less bad at writing. And so I do it, and I have things to to say, and that's the only way I I found to say it. But uh, I don't wake up every day thinking, uh, oh, it's wonderful to be a writer. It's uh, I I I wish I was something else. <laughs> what do you wish you were? Uh, so many things. I wish I was a, I was a dancer, but mm-hmm. now I guess it's too late because <laughs> if you want to be an, a good dancer, you have to start very young. Hip hop, ballet, um, jazz modern. Uh, yeah, ballet because I'm uh, I'm I'm very gay, <laughs> and so <laughs> I'm character. But and I love the idea of being a ballet dancer in my caricatural mind. But I have a feeling. How tall are you, Edouard? One meter eighty-five centimeters. I think you have the same problem as Princess Diana. I think you would be too tall for ballet. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the only problem that I share with her. <laughs> there are many. And also, you know, when I was. When I was little, I was uh, I was um, in order to make money to to go to high school and to buy food and everything. I was uh, I was selling bread in a bakery. Okay. And uh, I loved it so much. I loved it so much. I loved talking with the old lady every day. They came and picked the same things again and again, uh, one day after the other, and we would talk about the weather. And um, in a way, I, um, I I I loved it so much, and sometimes I feel so. <laughs> nostalgic and uh, but 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 the idea is like to to change your life and to have another life every day you know like in in Pierre Bourdieu the sociologist uh, once wrote a, a little book of a memoir called uh, Esquisse for an autoanalysis and um, it was he, he called it an autoanalysis and not an autobiography and uh, he talks about uh, Flaubert it was I think who said that he wanted to experience all the possible lives within a single life and for me it always had been like a like a dream to experience all the lives within my own life and and in a way um, now I'm I'm trying to do it and recently I've been um, 
experimenting different things. I've been acting on stage with with Thomas Ostermeyer. I have been uh, I have been working in theater. I have been teaching. I have been. Uh, I always try to find a way to 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 escape my life. And um, so yeah, I do I do what I can. <laughs> Don't you think that being a writer allows you to live a different life every day from the comfort of your own kitchen table? I don't feel this way. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> Is that because of the material that you write? Yeah. Because you could, if you wanted to, write as a pirate one day, as a ballet dancer another day, as a market stallholder a different yeah, day. Yeah, exactly. But that doesn't call you. That doesn't that doesn't work for me because I uh, I know that I will probably never be able to write a uh, fiction and I will never be able to write a novel. I am kind of uh, uh, trapped in my existence and uh, I, I I have things that I experienced and that I feel a urge to say. I have I feel like a, a pressure to to talk about those things. The th- the things that I explored in my books. Uh, uh, homophobia, working class, poverty in France, and uh, and I I feel that I, I I can't talk about anything else. I feel it's it's very it's a very complex feeling because uh, every time I try to write about something else, I I, I feel ashamed. I I often talk about shame, but uh, ashamed. Yeah, I feel ashamed of fiction, mm. and and it's not at all. Um, a rule of literature that I'm that I'm putting up, you know. I mm-hmm. I read mo- most of the time. In fact, I read novels and I read fictions and I read your books and I read Tash O's books and I read Toni Morrison's books and I read uh, so many books of fiction. But um, when I go to my kitchen table in order to write, if I try to to make up a story, to invent a story, to 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 do a work as a as a fiction writer. Immediately, I have like ghosts from the past popping up, people that I personally knew and people who, because of my past and because of the way of, of, of the milieu I belong to, they, 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 like um, I, I, I saw a lot of people suffering and a lot of people um, experiencing and facing very difficult things. And if I try to write about anything else, I have the the ghost of them. I have the ghost of their faces telling me, "Why don't you? Why don't you write about us? Why? Why are you making up a story? And why? Why? Why aren't you uh, talking about us?" And and in a way, I feel um, a kind of uh, schizophrenia because I uh, I know it has something I don't know naive or wrong or but but I but I I can't and. It's a, it's a very strange feeling. Um, you know, there is there is a scene that I often talk about, which was um, because it was kind of um, a, a kind of traumatic scene and 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 uh, important scene in my life, which was when I when I was a teenager. There there was a French writer who won the Nobel Prize for literature, and um, I I was home with my parents in this milieu that I describe in my book, in a very uh, poor milieu, working class in the north of France. Um, my father had a miserable life at the factory and everything, so it was the context. And we saw this writer on TV, and uh, he was on TV because it was the Nobel Prize of Literature, because usually TV doesn't really care about literature, but that time, because it was a French writer, the, the, the media, they, they, they were stupidly nationalistically happy, <laughs> and they were talking about it. 
uh, it was the uh, Le Clésio, and there was a kind of archive or kind of interview, and he was talking about his fiction work and how he makes up stories and makes up characters and makes up situations and creates them. And and I remember very naively thinking, but uh, why doesn't why he doesn't talk about us? We are here with with real suffering, with re- real pain. And he's creating fake characters. And I know that those characters reflect actual real pain that exists, of course, because as I was saying, like when Toni Morrison writes about black people, she writes about, even if it's fiction, she writes about an actual accurate situation that happens, that happened in the past or happened in the... Realistic. Exactly. So I know, that's why I talk about schizophrenia, but, but still I had this feeling in, inside my flesh, under my skin on that day. And I thought... Why doesn't talk about us? We want us to talk about us. Nobody talks about us. Nobody will never know my mother or my father if no one talk about them. They are not like these rich people who are on TV. They are not like these important people who write things, who create things, who have money, who have companies. Like they are not like these people that you read about in the news or not at all. And I, I, I had this feeling, and it, it became part of me. When I moved to Paris, and I, I realized that uh, because I moved to Paris, as you know, to be a writer, to start writing my books, I, I kind of broke with my family to become another person. Mm-hmm. And when I arrived in Paris and I, I faced the bourgeoisie for the first time of my life, I realized that the, the bourgeoisie didn't care at all about these people and didn't care at all about poverty, didn't care at all about the fact that some people everywhere are starving and facing very difficult situations. It's not, it's not that they don't know. They know it. Everyone knows. Everyone knows. But they just don't care. They really, really, really don't care. And um, because of these memories that I had, this kind of a traumatic scene of the, of, of the television scene, I realized that for what I wanted to do, which is confronting this, this bourgeoisie to what they don't care about, confronting them to what they want to ignore, to con- confront them to what they deny. I, I had the feeling that writing autobiography was a, a continuation of that feeling that I had, because I had the feeling that in writing autobiography, I was forcing them to be confronted to what I, I was going to say about poor people. They couldn't escape, because if I say I write autobiography... They couldn't pretend. Exactly. You know, there is when uh, Peter Honkers, an uh, um, uh, Austrian writer, one of his first book was a book about his his mother, and it's it's one of his uh, autobiographical book, even even if he wrote mostly fiction, and um, he wrote a book about his mom, and she she killed herself. She had a complex, uh, somehow, sometimes very miserable life, and uh, and she killed herself when she was in her fifties. And at the beginning of the book, he says, um, I could pretend that this story is a fiction story and people would get less personally involved, less emotionally involved. But no, I'm not going to say it because it's really her life and it's really the life of my mother. And it's always the feeling that I had that in writing autobiography, not only I was responding to these ghosts around me that asked me to talk about them and to write about them, but that also I was confronting people with what they don't want to see. And it's my, it's my deep goal. It's, it's all I want to. My goal as a writer is to be unbearable, to show an unbearable reality to people. And I know 
that the autobiographical writing has this unbearable aspect because when people face it, they know this person is actually existing, is actually here, is actually entering this suffering, that this person, and, and it, it has something, it has something deeply unbearable. And it's not only this and not forever, and maybe it won't be the case in 30 years, and maybe it was not the case 20 years ago, but I have the feeling that in the, in the present time, it has something powerful and, and political, and also that's why I'm, I'm doing it, and to, to answer your question, that's why I, I can't, and I don't want to, to write about anything else, and that's why I can't escape and have another life when I, when I write, because I want to write about those things. <laughs> so. Do you think by also forcing other people to look at things they don't want to see, you have to do that to yourself constantly. You have to constantly gaze at pain and things that in I mean, most people will try and spare themselves from dwelling in that or um, concentrating, focusing closely on that. So do you think some of your resistance to writing and to sitting at the table and to, and to work, as you call it, um, is part of that resistance to just dealing with that trauma again and again? Yeah, uh, it, it it does. I mean, um, when I do it, I have to put myself in um, in question also. Not only questioning the realities around me, but questioning my point of view and questioning my being. And so, when I, of course, when I write, I try also to put myself in this uh, uncomfortable and sometimes unbearable situation. So I try to to find literary ways and literary construction that would allow me to, to put myself in question as much as the reality that I describe and the people that I describe. As the narrator. Yeah, exactly. And it's what, it's what I did when I wrote A History of Violence. It's an autobiographical book, but the, the story is, is told by, by my sister. So the book is autobiographical, but the, 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 the narration is fictional. It's quite hostile to the character of you in it. You know, I've got a very fractious relationship with my sisters. <laughs> so the way that you allowed her to be the one that tells your story, especially this kind of story, it really stunned me because I would never allow my sister <laughs> to tell my story, even a much more benign one. So why did you do that? Be because I was, uh, it, it was an autobiographical story. It was an, uh, an experienced experience. And, and because of that, I wanted to put myself at the level of a character as much as all the others, you know? Mm. So if, if it was an autobiography told by someone else, it allowed me to be a character like anyone else in, in, in the story and kind of like objectify my, um, my position in this story and to be, to be critical because also this book talks about a, a certain moment of my trajectory when I moved to Paris and when, as I was telling you, I was um, being confronted to the bourgeoisie at the same time. But like a lot of people um, who have this trajectory, the, the trajectory of an outsider, when I moved to Paris, I was, of course, kind of uh, naive. I wanted to be a bourgeois so much. Mm. I was blind. I thought that the bourgeoisie was wonderful, you know. I thought that it was paradise. I wanted this life. I wanted to be like them. And that was because of all of the representations you'd seen of them. Yeah. They were the representation of French life and of good life. Exactly. Because when I was a child, we were intimidated by the bourgeoisie as working class people. We thought that they had a better way of talking than hers. They had a better way of uh, behaving, of dressing, 
And so, of course, we kind of, um, we wanted the life. It was not only me, it was my mother, it was my father, but also there was another aspect of this process, which was, I, I, I grew up gay in this working class family, and it was like for many LGBT people in their childhood, and particularly in rural places, like the one in which I grew up, in remote places in the province, in the middle of nowhere, it was particularly difficult for me to be gay. And for me to access the bourgeoisie was a kind of a revenge against my childhood. I thought, you humiliated me when I was a child, and now I'm going to be better than you, and uh, I'm going to be richer than you. Of course, it was a very um, violent way of thinking, and now I don't, I don't think this way anymore, of course. It was, and that's why I had to objectify myself in history of violence, because I was describing this moment where the outsider is arriving in the big city, pursuing studies for the first time in his family, the first person, I was the first person doing it. And of course, when you do this, you very often, maybe not always, but you very often carry a certain violence with you. And I was carrying this violence of doing, now I'm going to take my my revenge against my family. But but now I'm ashamed uh, to 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 think that, you know, and, and now I am, I am less blind and I'm also more able to see how vulgar the bourgeoisie can be, how violent the bourgeoisie can be, how homophobic the bourgeoisie can be, how racist the bourgeoisie can be. But at the beginning, I didn't see this. So there is this, but also at the same time, which is important to say, of course, as a, as a gay boy, it was still it was much easier to to be gay in Paris than it was in the countryside, than it was in the in a small town in a small village, mm. and so it was also a matter of survival. So if I if I may do so, I I give some excuses to the to the boy I was because mm. um, it was much more breathable for me, and it was much more possible to to live my life as a gay person, to have gay interactions, to be accepted. And so it was It was a mix of things. It was a mix of naivete. It was a mix of surviving, because of course it was easier. And, and, and it was a mix of, um, of violence and, and all of that. But when I, when I wrote History of Violence, that, that, was, the, that was the goal, to also be critical um, towards the person I was. And also... Um, because I wrote mostly about poor people uh, and about the milieu in which I grew up, uh, some people told me, but why don't you want to write about the bourgeoisie and why don't you want to write about also the potential violence of the bourgeoisie? And I was answering to people, but I, I did it in history of violence. But the problem that was that the bourgeois was me, you know? Yes. I became the, I became the bourgeois. And, 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 and I became the one that was um, uh, perpetuating violence as a bourgeois uh, against my family, against my sister, in the way I was talking, in the way I was dressing, just, just, just when you are an outsider, mm. um, like uh, like I was, I, just just being is is violent as a as a person. Just being because just the way you talk, you don't talk like your family anymore. Yeah. You don't dress like your family anymore. You have more money than your family. You behave in a certain way, and and it's a, uh, it's aggressive. But but at the same time, I don't uh, I don't apologize for changing. <laughs> I want people who listen to us today to understand that I I don't apologize, and uh, I had the right to change, and I had the right to 
to become another person and we have the right to to become an, another person and it's not because i'm critical uh towards uh the world you came from exactly the world i come from or towards the the violence that we can carry in the process of changing that uh, that that i apologize it's not the same thing because also i have the same i have the feelings that, that sometimes um when you talk about changing, when you talk about metamorphosis, when you talk about um, being an outsider, you have the feeling that the bourgeoisie wants you to say that it is violence. They want you to apologize for changing, you know? And so it's not what I'm doing. I want the bourgeoisie to know it. I owe them nothing. <laughs> well, I come from, I don't come from rural France, but I come from a London estate, um, working class neighbours, one of the very few immigrant families. So that sense of being an outsider, feeling surrounded mm -hmm. by a latent sense of violence is something that I'm very familiar with. We were the only Somali family in the early 90s that were not forced out of the area. The other uh -huh. two families had to leave because of the of the real violence that they faced every day. Uh. So it's very um, intriguing to me that I've always been quite shy of writing about those experiences because it so quickly becomes a kind of Pygmalion story where you're the lucky one to have got out and you're now reporting back, you know, in, almost as a native informant in a more colonial context would be, but in, a, in this sense, mm -hmm. in a class, class sense that you're giving um, wealthy people, the bourgeoisie, what they want to hear, right. which is a lesson of, um, you know, a fugitive, basically, a class fugitive. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to give that story. And how have you responded to the um, acceptance that you've received as well from the bourgeoisie? Um, I mean, uh, first, I, I didn't really feel acceptance, particularly in France. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was uh, publishing my books always have been um, a, a violent experience. Really? In what ways? Like polemics, uh, insults. Uh, like uh, a, a, a war, a war in a way <laughs> uh, that that was like insulting in the in the media, wow. um, saying really bad stuff. Zadie Smith has written about Britain's hostility to people who leave the world that they come from. Mm -hmm. um, so you know the whole British kind of snobbery about um, nouveau riche or people that put on airs and graces um, beyond their station. She's been insulted for being overeducated, um, too clever for her own good. So is that similar to the experience that you had in France? It's um, it's I, I think the, the the feeling was different. I think I think that the problem that um, I was not. I not. I was not the poor working class boys they expected me to be. Uh, they wanted me to be, and because precisely, I'm not apologizing, and I'm not. I'm not saying thank you to the bourgeoisie. <laughs> I'm. I'm questioning their value, and I'm. And also in the structures of the of the book, like this, because this risk that you are mentioning about writing, you know, a survival story of the person who escaped, and that makes it makes people comfortable. In my writing, I tried to I tried to undo it, and in the end of Eddie, when I say that I I escaped my family and my milieu, I, I say that it it happens uh, in, in spite of me. So the, the the second part of my book of the end of Eddie, where I escape, is called the the failure, because I I didn't want to escape this milieu at the beginning. I was forced to do it because as a as as a gay boy, I couldn't fit in. You wanted to be the ideal and stay in that community within that masculine ideal. Oh, yeah. 
Oh yeah, I said it. I said it so many times. So I don't want to repeat myself too much. But <laughs> but clearly, while well, my 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 dream as a child was not to pursue academic study or to write books, I wanted I wanted to be masculine. I wanted to be good at soccer. I wanted to be attracted by girls. I wanted to be able to have sex with girls. I wanted to I wanted to embody all the most caricatural images and representations of of masculinity because my because my family were ashamed of me, because I was um, what they perceived as effeminate, because I had a, a gay body, a gay way of talking, of moving, and my and and as many um, gay people, I was being beaten up I, at mm. school. People would call me faggot. It was and 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 um, at that time, I wanted I wanted that to stop, and I wanted to be I wanted to be the king of masculinity. I didn't uh, I wasn't questioning that. And because I failed again and again, I, I I had to escape. And when you come from such a milieu, the only way to escape is the school system because I didn't have any network. I didn't have any relationship. I couldn't find any money. I didn't speak another language. I didn't... Uh, so you have to go to school. And it's what you did. You put all your energy in school, mm. right? Yes, yes. And, you know, my father, my parents didn't go to school, so... My pa- my father put a lot of effort into me doing well at school as a way of also satisfying his own ambitions and frustrated ambitions mm. in life. So I, I kind of glided through the school system without really know- knowing. I don't think I had such a clear idea as you seem to have had about um, the 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 way out that education could provide. But I just kind of bumbled along <laughs> quite happily within that system <laughs> because I found it comfortable. I found it safe in a world that felt very mm-hmm. unsafe in other ways. So yeah, it's it's incredible to see how the, you know, in in such uh, different uh, lives that we have, we always find the same structures. Yes. Like um, kind of same path, and uh, so exactly. But but in a way, I was uh, like you at the beginning when I arrived in high school. I was, uh, I just as you as you said, I just felt safer, and I mm. felt that it was a place where I could be accepted a little bit more. But for me, it was, um, um, as I often said, it was it was a terrible, it was a terrible, terrible fail. And if someone came to see me at that time and told me, okay, either you stay in high school, being the first in the family doing this, and you will write books and you will go to Paris, or you become the, the king of masculinity, I would have chose uh, option two, and I would have come, I would have um, been back to the village and. Uh, my dream was to be conformed, and so, like in the in the books I write, I always try to to find the the the, the way of the storytelling, the narration, the frame of the stories, the way I write it, in order to to fracture that exactly to 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 kind of go against this myth of the of the outsiders that can be a way of comforting the system, and uh, in a way, what I always tried to say that you know if if my dream was to be conform and if i wasn't different but if, if other people made me different by telling me you are different you are different you are different yeah. and if i i became in a way different from my family because i have no choice it means that difference is a political question so also it's a question to the people like how do you do to to give the people an, an opportunity to become what they are or to become different or to become what they don't know yet that they want to be. That that brings me on to the issue of 
yourself invention, your reinvention. And you've written that um, Edouard is the name of your reinvention and your freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The pain of metamorphosis is clear, but perhaps less clear is the beauty of it. Um, can you tell us more about the pleasure your self-invention has brought you? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's always complicated for me because I... Uh, I'm always um, uncomfortable talking about beautiful stories and it's, I know it's stupid <laughs> because I, I, I always think like there are so many sad things to say before <laughs> but sometimes we need that a little bit and yeah. uh, no it's true that when I when I when I realized that I had to change myself and when I realized that it uh, it was my salvation and it was my way of um, of um, being I mean going towards some things that I I perceived as freedom and and, and liberty it was uh, it was something incredibly beautiful you know I was when I when I changed my when I changed my name it was such an incredible moment the first day so I was born Eddie which is in front of every working class name because a lot of working class people give American names to their children so if you have an American name in front it probably very very likely means that you are come from a poor milieu when i changed my, my th- this name and i became i became edouard because it was the name that um, um, a friend gave me in high school because it was close from eddie but it was a different name i then i went to to court to change the name and the day i had my the day i had my passport with the new name was such an incredibly beautiful moment like a baptism the na- exactly because i thought like the name is the it's the name of your freedom yes. it's the name of your reinvention it's the name of your struggle and um, and and in a way it, it, at some point in my life i i became an, an, an addict to <laughs> metamorphosis you know and so well, that's I, really interesting in what ways I mean, I changed not only my name, but I I changed uh, my teeth. I had surgery for my teeth because also it, I, we we couldn't really afford going to the dentist when I was a child, and it was uh, complicated to go there. And also, it was not a habit to to see the doctor because uh, seeing dentist or doctor was considered something uh, kind of effeminate, coming from the bourgeoisie fancy. The people who always care about themselves was something. <laughs> So it was a mix of uh, a, a lack of money and a, a mix of uh, perception a cultural, yeah. and uh, a cultural aspect, absolutely. Mm. And um, and uh, the, the the thing is, the, um, I, I changed I, I changed that, but because also I wanted to be, it was also because I wanted to be someone else. And also I changed. I went to court again, and I changed not only my first name but my my family name, and also I changed my way of talking I, 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 tr- I, I changed my way of laughing and laughing why did you change your way of laughing I wanted to have nothing in common with my past and uh, I wanted as I told you I became an addict <laughs> and I was I would put my I remember when I was 16 or 17 I had those moments where I was in front of my mirror and I was um, training myself to laugh in a different way and I was doing it every day again and again and again until my laughter becomes a laughter that I wanted. And somehow, one day after, after doing it for one year, I was very, very um, focused. And I, I would give myself 10 minutes every day to laugh in a different way. But why did you, you, you had an image of who you wanted to be, that you, you felt you were not there, or you just wanted to cut off all, all parts of the, of the old Eddie? Was it movement to something or movement away from something or both? 
you're right. It was clearly a movement away from my childhood because I detested it because of the because of this ambience of uh, violence that I described. Uh, and so it was moving away from something. But at, at some point, this movement of going away from something became a, like a, a movement itself that was disconnected from this. It was just the, the beauty and the pleasure of, 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 of changing and uh, of, of, of thinking, I, I am what I want to be. As a, as a way of life. Exactly, as a way of life. And also, in fact, I think that it's an... Uh, it's an underestimated uh, political issue, and it's an under-narrated political issue. What it is to be changing, and what it is to to face all the the beauty uh, in one in one hand, and also the the violence of changing. The fact that uh, in in a society, people people don't want other people to change. Because we, as a society, we ent- we interiorize the images of, of social reproduction. You know, Pierre Bourdieu, the sociologist, described how through the institutions, through the state, through the school system, through the police, through the prison system, we tend to reproduce, the world tends to reproduce violently the social class as they are, and the mobility are extremely complicated. But but what is what is incredible is to see that this social reproduction is not only in the institutions, but it's in everybody's mind. And um, you know what I remember it from my experience when I started to change, to change my way of laughing, to change my name. People were very often telling me, "But uh, uh, what what are you what are you doing? What do you do? Why are you doing this? We who do you think you are?" And in fact, if you take the literary corpus. There are many stories, uh, particularly in the, in French literature, of hate of people changing. You know, when when in, in in Le Rouge et Le Noir from Stendhal, the Red and the Black, the main character who wants to change and who wants to become someone else, uh, he, he dies at the end. Um, there is a there is a novel from Zola, which is one of the most wonderful novels from Zola, called uh, To the Ladies' Delight, Au Bonheur des Dames. Which describes the trajectory of a of a woman coming from a little town, arriving in Paris, and wanting to recreate a new life for her, and and in in the novel she's facing again and again this kind of um, um, social reproduction, not as an institutional process, but as a constant uh, micro power everywhere, you know, of the way people behave with her and everything. There are quite a few examples in American literature, such as The Talented Mr. Ripley exactly. by Patricia Highsmith, or all of those um, tales of people passing, people passing from black to white and trying to cut off, you know, there's The Human Stain by Philip Roth. Exactly. Um, passing by Nella Larson. And they always come to a terrible end. Right. It's not only that they um, come to a terrible end most of the time, but it's also that um, uh, very often... They are described as, uh, you know, like uh, um, people with um, a bad personality, people who are manipulators, people who would do anything in order to succeed and everything. And it's not only the situations that are described, the situations that they are facing, but it's also the the ways they are being um, written about by, by, by the writers or the ways that, that they are being perceived by society. You know, in France, there is a there is a, a name from literature which is Rastignac, which is a person, the, the character from Balzac, from the from the Balzac Odyssey, 
Rastignac is the is the character who is the is the the outsider in in Balzac novels. He comes from Provence, and he comes to Paris, and he wants to become rich, and he he wants to change himself, and he wants to become someone else. And in the French language, to be a Rastignac from from the novel uh, of uh, Balzac, uh, is is it became an insult in France. It became someone who would do anything in order to succeed. Like a little bit like a, a Mr. Replay, as you were saying, mm. someone who you know has a kind of dark personality, uh, uh, something to to hide, something violent, pathological. Absolutely. So, like, so I I really think, and um, even at a, on an everyday basis, because I have this trajectory coming from the working class, and I talk about it in my lectures or when I go to bookshops and everything, I meet. I meet so many people after the lectures who tell me uh, I wanted to change myself and I suffered from it and I didn't feel accepted and and also yeah it for me now in the future it would be one of my goals to try to constitute this 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 subject and this issue as a political issue and as a as a, as a political issue of of violence uh, as much as uh, you know like uh, homophobia or racism or male domination there is a particular uh, classism, a particular violence of class that today is under um, um, framed. It should be more framed and more articulate because it's it's kind of like a silent pain that so many people are going through. I think it's particularly apparent in the world of literature as well, actually, because it is such a small world and such an elite world that when people do appear from the outside, um, there's lots of resentment absolutely palpable resentment and james kelman who was up until uh, douglas stewart uh, won the booker prize this year he was the only scottish uh, winner of the booker prize and he's described a feeling completely iced out of the world of literature to the point where when his local bookshop in glasgow had a had a display of all booker prize winners his book was not there mm. so the, the lack of um the lack of, I think, people wanting to talk about why why can't someone be ambitious or be successful from a background that's not um, elite and right. not be a bad person, <laughs> not have not have they've not a fugitive, they've not um, they've not had to make a huge sacrifice, they've not to make they've not made a pact of the devil, all of these elements that I think are part of the narrative of what it takes to 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 leave your world behind. Yeah. yeah. And because you know, it's also because because in a way there is nothing as violent as culture, and and sometimes it can be even worse than the violence of of money, because in the the violence like culture is defined in itself by the gap between people who have it and people who don't have it, you know. And um, so people have access to literature and people don't have. People have access to theater and people don't have. People have access to opera and people don't have. And, and, and so the tr truth of culture is always hidden in this, in this gap between, between the ones who have access and the ones who don't have access. And, you know, there is my friend Didier Ribon in his book, Returning to Rancy, describing the scenes where the first time of his life, coming from a poor milieu, he goes to the opera in Paris. And he sees how, the, on the face of the bourgeoisie, how they are proud to be at the opera. 
in the way they move, in the way they talk, in the way they, they know that they are part of the, of the milieu that have access to it. It's a primal display. It's, it's something that animals do as well. I don't know if, you, have you, if you're aware of these Japanese macaques who sit in the spa in the hot springs on a Japanese island. And it turns out that they have an incredibly hierarchical system where the lower caste macaques have to sit outside in the cold, in the snow, while the high class macaques sit in the water bathing each other. <laughs> and if anyone approaches the spring, any of the other um, monkeys approach the spring, they are attacked. They're physically repelled. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, lo- I love perceiving the, the bourgeoisie d'opéra as, as macaques. It's wonderful. It's, it's wonderful. Uh, yeah, no, but in a way, it's a, it's a, it's a, I, always, uh, I always have been um, suspicious to arts and, and, and culture from, from this perspective. And, you know, like, also when I, when I arrived in Paris and, and, and I, I was hearing the, the bourgeoisie saying, you know, like, uh, inspired things about um, uh, literature or arts or cinema or they would say culture uh, build bridge uh, uh, between us uh, is what makes us connect and all those things for me, for me what I, I heard behind those words was we are the people who have access to it we are the people who can be touched by the grace and the beauty of art and we are the conscious gatekeepers of it as well. Yeah, and so many people live without literature and without arts, and uh, and and they are they are fine in a way. There is something that I mean, like if we want to if we want to do something new within the art or the literature, we have to be challenging the, the this this violence of culture that culture always carry with itself in this gap. And so, of course, when you are an outsider, these cultural media they don't want. They don't want you to to crash in the milieu because it's it's their it's their exclusivity. So and culture is defined whether people say it and want it or deny it. It's always defined by this violent gap. And as soon as the gap is being undone, the dominant class always managed to to rebuild the gap uh, in 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 a new way in in a new way. Do you think that 2020 has had any potential for closing that gap? I'm thinking particularly of the mass protests that happened across the world, including in France, to do with Black Lives Matter. And I know that you've been closely connected to the campaign to seek justice for Adama Traore, Mm -hmm. who was Mm -hmm. killed by police in 2016, Mm -hmm. suffocated um, during a police stop. So do you think that Culturally, there is any movement towards a closing of what, what is considered elite and what is considered popular, even if it's in the politics of um, that or the, the people who are creating that art? Yeah, I mean, there are uh, clearly uh, things changing like this. And, and what happened with, uh, with Asa Traoré, as you were mentioning in, in, in France, was really unseen before. And France has such an, a long history of, uh, as you know, not colonialism, but also racism and, and, and police violence. We know that uh, almost uh, one person of color is killed every month by the French police. 
Um, we know that uh, during the Algerian war, it has been terrible. They had been killing so many people, throwing them in the river scene, La Seine and everything. So, mm. so there is this long story, and it was um, so many people tried to 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 create a, a, a movement to resist that, but the, the, the conservative forces were too strong, and Assad Khawarishi managed to to undo it and to 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 really create something that was unseen before and something revolutionary. How do you think it's revolutionary? In a way, it's connected to what we were discussing before because uh, she forced people to see what they already knew and that they w- didn't want to see. Because when you are in France, when you grew up in France, you know that everyone knows, everyone knows that if you are black or if you are Arab, you have much more chance to live in a dump in the periphery of the city. Everyone knows that it's much more difficult to have a job. Everyone knows that if you are black or Arab, if you go to a supermarket, the security person will follow you. Everyone knows uh, that you have much more chance to be poor if you are. Everyone knows. People know that. People know that the police arrest them, kill them. Everyone knows. And Asa Traoré, she she managed to, to, to confront the people, to force the people to see these realities that they were pretending to ignore. And that's why they became so aggressive to, to her. And also, I think that she also completely reshaped the, the way of doing politics. In, in uh, She has been saying, my struggle is everyone's struggle, you know? And also, it was something very, that, that created a new, a new kind of political massive. She said, no matter, you are white, you are black, you are gay, you are, you are part of this movement. And um, and it forced people to be confronted to this, and to get involved in a way, or to or to deny it, but to be confronted to it, and that was in a way very very new, very new. Because uh, sometimes I have the, the the impression that in the in foreign countries such as the United States, where very great, of course, and important things are happening, but sometimes that the the movements. Uh, all the social movements, the gay movements, the uh, um, uh, anti-racism movement, that they are sometimes very academic, you know. They are, for me, they are very often losing their times with questions like, uh, is it your story to tell? Can you talk about uh, gay people if you are straight? Yeah. For, for Asa, it was not a question. For Asa, the question was, we are going to win. And it is the only question. It connects back to your point earlier about exclusion. And it's again about trying to reframe how can we exclude people from writing about certain things. And that goes completely against, I think, your writing, which is strength is a radical honesty and a a willingness to turn people's expectations or prejudices on, on their heads. So in the history of violence, you say that it's not the responsibility of the person who's experienced the trauma to write about it, to educate other people, to to um, to make people think about it. It's actually the responsibility of all the people who haven't had to carry that burden. Absolutely. Which is the opposite of this more modern idea that you can only write about what you know. So if you haven't experienced something yourself, you must allow the person who has to take control of it. And you're saying the complete reverse. Absolutely, I think so. I think that uh, it's not only that we are allowed to talk about realities, it's also that we are allowed to not talk about realities. And I think that we have, as people, a fundamental right to not talk about a violence that we didn't choose. People can't force you 
to be the one who will be fighting against this 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 violence. And so it's what I I talked about it particularly in history of violence because it's it's talking about sexual violence and and talk about a rape. And for me, because it was a personal story, I realized that after the after the assault, the justice system or the doctors or the judges or the lawyers they wanted me to talk about this story again and again and again and again. Mm. Tell the story again, repeat the story again, tell it to the lawyer, tell it to the doctors, tell it to the judge, tell it to your friend. And I was, you know, I didn't choose that to happen to me. It happens, I mean, in spite of myself. So why would you force me to be carrying this, this violence? We have a right to do so. And so in this, in this sense, it becomes other people responsible responsibility to talk about it because they don't have the fatigue from violence they don't have the the trauma they don't have the exhaustion and 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 so it completely reverses the contemporary vocabulary about politics which is very focused on who is about one of the things that i really that struck uh, me when i first read the end of eddie is quite on quite late on in the novel and it's it's not traumatic at all but i think it just showed me the where you're willing to go and it was your discussion of how when you arrived in is it lille where you went to study it's amiel yeah you arrived in the city and one of the first things you did was hold your bags close to you because either you had been told explicitly or implicitly that you know places cities with black people with arabs with uh, non-white people are dangerous. Mm -hmm. So even though you had come from a place where you had been humiliated and degraded, you realized there was a there was a instinctive feeling that now I am the person with a bit more power than the people around me. Mm -hmm. And I think that many other writers, especially white writers, are very nervous of admitting any thoughts like that <laughs> or any upbringing um, mm -hmm. that, that is what, you know, black people often describe having their bags, uh, having people's bags pulled away from them or being followed around shops and white people always feign shock. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how many times, how many decades of writing do you have to read before you realize this is norm? And this is norm because you, your parents, your grandparents are doing this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciated the fact that you were picking up some of that weight and saying, yeah, I did it myself. Yeah, I was, I was part of this. I am, uh, I am, I am white in a racial world. And so it, it, it means something. And uh, to try to understand this and uh, analyze it, for me, yes, as, as you, as we also, we were talking about also from a class perspective, from a racial perspective, to try to understand that the violence that we carry within us, and also this idea that it's not because you are uh, socially excluded or dominated that you are a good person. And I know that this, it must be the most obvious thing and the most admitted thing, but I have the impression that in the world we live today, it's not, and I still have to fight in order to, to, to say it, to say that in, in the middle of my childhood, People were poor, people were excluded, people were suffering, but people were unbelievably racist and people were homophobic. Uh, not 100% of them, not in the same way, but massively, a lot of people. The male domination was terrible. My father wanted my mother to stay home and to do nothing. And, and when, I, when I wrote about it in my three first book, I had, I had to face like huge polemics of people saying, 
oh, he's uh, talking uh, badly about working class people. And uh, people have this idea that if you, if you fight for people, you have to show that they are lovable. And, uh, and for me, it's not. You can, on one hand, say that people suffer, and on the other hand, say that people uh, make other people suffer. To fight for someone is not necessarily to love someone. If you fight for the working class, if you fight for the Muslim people who endure racism, if you fight for the people who are in jail, it doesn't mean that they are good people. They can be all fully homophobic, they can be all fully uh, racist, they can be... And that's their full humanity. You have to factor in their full humanity. Yeah. Let's quickly jump to Jenny's question. So this is a question from Jenny Erpenbeck. Often writing is a kind of answer to physical or mental violence, contempt, arrogance. It's a way to speak to the other side, to connect, to make people understand what we all have in common instead of hating each other. But what if the other side is not willing to listen or to read? Or if their problems are based on a situation that really cannot be solved just by words? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I would. what I would do is that I would put... I would put uh, Jenny Erpenbeck questions backward and, and uh, <laughs> saying that um, I know that they don't want to listen to me and that they don't want to see what I have to say, but that precisely I, I want to say it because they don't want to listen. And in a way, I could say that uh, I, I write for my enemies. I only write for my enemies. <laughs> I love that. I write because... Uh, I want to question them. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, because I want to. It's a kind of spear. It's a weapon. Yeah, they, absolutely. A spear that I, I. It don't mean that I think that they will necessarily change the conservative people, the dominant class, and everything. But they will be forced, if I confront them to this reality, they will be forced to say who they are. And for me, it's already a victory, you know? Mm. And, and, and because of that, it allows the world to change because suddenly the world is visible. So it's like an important book of literature that makes a certain reality visible. A strong political movement, uh, for me, is the same thing. I don't see any difference between Beloved from Toni Morrison and May 68. So <laughs> for me, like, it's, it's, uh, the, the, the effect is the same. Is that suddenly people are being forced to say who they are. And because of that, we are stronger to defeat them. Mm. I know you, you knew her um, uh, when Toni Morrison... Uh, we, we both met her, didn't we? Around the same time in New York. Exactly. I remember you you did this conversation with her. I, yes, we shared our selfies with her. Yeah, it was, your yes. conversation with her was wonderful, <laughs> very funny also. It was oh, powerful. You. But when she, when she died, which was a tragedy for literature, uh, the, 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 the media came, came up with um, mm. archives of interviews when she started to publish her books and everything. And it was incredible to see uh, the racism of white journalists yes. uh, asking questions to her, telling her, but why do you write only about black people and those kind of... You're so good. You could write about white people if you like. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> why, why would you uh, close yourself? In a, in yes. A, in a, in a, I think a, they even use the word limit. Uh, yeah, why would limit yourself? Just writing about African-Americans. Can, can you imagine when, when I saw this, this video? I, of course, I can imagine because, in fact, it's still happening in many ways, but... 
when I saw it, I, I thought, like, because of what she wrote, Toni Morrison, she forced these people to say it aloud, to say, in fact, their limits, not Toni Morrison limits, but their limits, and their conservatism, and their racism. Yes. But then we can see who they are, and and you, you can fight a society only if you understand the way this society is. So, so, so that's why writing for my enemies is my goal because I want to, to it's what, it's what I called when I published Who My Father, it was I called confrontational literature, not only committed literature, not only literature that would expose the world, but a literature that would be an assault for the dominant. So how can you find the literary tools, the literary frames, the literary shape in order to confront, to create a confrontational literature? which would go further than the committed literature of Jean-Paul Sartre um, and uh, force the people to, 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 to be clear and to, to reveal themselves. What are you reading? Uh, these, you mean uh, th- these days? Yes. What are you reading right now? Uh, uh, this day I've been, uh, uh, I, I'm ashamed of saying it, I can't say it because it's too cliche. <laughs> Please tell me. It's too cliche. No, it's in Harry Potter. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> no, uh, almost. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, if you want the truth, it's Marcel Proust, but because I was... Uh, <laughs> the French Harry Potter. Uh, <laughs> the French Harry Potter. <laughs> but uh, I, was, I, want, I needed to read something about um, obsession, and uh, I needed to, to reread uh, some part of the, of the first uh, thing. So I have, been, I have been reading it, but it's, uh, it's awfully cliche. But m- most, most of the time I, lis- I listen to music. I listen to... Who do you listen to or what do you listen to? I listen to Lana Del Rey, which I think is an incredibly avant-garde artist, I, I, I think. Uh, in in music, also a lot of uh, Patti Smith and uh, a lot of Nina Simone, and also a lot of rap music. A lot of I don't know if she's known in the foreign countries, but there was a, a rap musician. How do we say it in English? A, yeah, a rapper. Yeah, a rapper. No, what? A, a, rap, rapper. a rapper, rapper. A rapper. Mm-hmm. She, she 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 was um, a very important rapper in France, and in a way, like, just one sentence about it because it makes me think about it, considering what we have been discussing. Um, for me, the, so she was an important, very, very important rapper in French music, and one of the first. What's her name? Uh, Diams. It's a contraction of diamonds. It's a contraction. Uh, so D I A M S. She was one of the first female rapper to 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 impose herself and to, in fact, want once again to confront people to certain realities in France about poverty and everything. And she always said something that interests interested me because she in, in several interviews she was saying considering my life and considering my background and considering the person I am I, I have gone through a lot of difficult moments I've gone through a lot of difficult times a lot of violence and I wanted to say it and I had to say it but you know she said I had no musical uh, background I didn't know anything about music I don't have a particularly wonderful operatic voice or anything like Jesse Norman or Maria Callas. I don't have anything like this. I have no ba- school background, but I had, I had a pain to express. And the rap music 
offered me a space in which it was possible to express this pain without all the school backgrounds, the cultural, classical cultural backgrounds, the, 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 the elite cultural backgrounds and everything. And for me, it was, it, this, this sentence when she said it for me was a shock. And I, I always thought like, can literature one day be a space where people can come and carry a pain that they endured, even if they don't have uh, what we expect them to have to be in literature, or is literature too elitist to be this? But I, 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 I love this idea of rap music to be a place where people can come with the pain and, and express it in a, in, a, in, a, in a radical new way. In their, on their own terms. On their own terms, on on on, uh, but yeah. So th- th- for me, this is the question that she was uh, asking to to art and to music in her in her milieu. For me, it's really uh, challenging. Like, can literally, I don't have any answer, but I have this question. I have this question in my mind, and uh, can literature can can literature be a, a welcoming space in which people, of course, because at the end she had different skills. Of course, a sense of rhythm, a sense of uh, reality, a sense of everything. So, but 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 a space which could be open to to people with different experiences and backgrounds. And 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 for sure, today literature is not doing this very much. A little bit, of course, because if you Nadifa are writing and if me Edouard are writing, it's the it's the proof that the people who don't come from the right place can crack in. Yes. But compared to rap, it's not it's not enough. No, 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 no. So do you think that this world that you've kind of entered by accident, you know, the world of literature at such a young age, is where you'll be for for the foreseeable future? Or do you feel a hunger to to escape it? No, I don't in a way I don't I don't feel that I'm part of it because I don't feel uh, particularly in France again where I live I don't feel uh, I don't feel necessarily accepted by it but in a way I, I think it's uh, it's my it's my chance because um, if they had accepted me maybe they would have changed me and make me like them like this dominant bourgeois class and in a way the dominance they created the ripon that will destroy them because in rejecting people and in not accepting people from different places most of the time, not always and not everybody, of course, but uh, as it happens a lot, they they prevent people from becoming like them. You know, of course, when we were talking about the outsider process before and what it is to arrive in a big city and in a new class, at the beginning, you want to be like them. and But because I felt that they didn't want me to be really part of their life, that I would be necessarily always a little bit excluded they forced me to be critical and to be challenging so i'm not i'm not really part of this life i'm more trying to destroy this literary media here and uh, i never go to parties i never go to literary cocktails here i don't i don't even know a single person from the literary prices i don't uh, I don't like this video. I don't feel comfortable. I don't. I don't like it. I. I want to fight it with, with all my strength. And my life is outside of it. My life is in uh, politics. Uh, my life is with my friends, uh, but not in the literary milieu. 
it's very eerie, actually, how similar your answer is to Arundhati Roy's answer to a similar question. Oh, uh, yeah. Where she also said that she felt instinctively that this literary world was not for her. She just rejected <laughs> it. <laughs> the minute she won the Booker Prize, she knew that she had to escape from it. Oh, I'm, I'm glad you say it because I admire her uh, endlessly. So I am very <laughs> glad to have something in common with her. <laughs> well, I hate to name drop again, but my copy of History of Violence was actually given to me by Edmund White, who had been sent it as a proof. Oh. So it's full of his annotations and squiggles, and it's really fascinating to see oh, wow. <laughs> what caught his eye. And one thing that caught his eye was on chapter 11, where you, you write about imagining your own funeral and having a conversation with your friend Jeffrey. And he said that everybody does that. Mm -hmm. And Edmund White has underlined this part. I don't know whether to feel ashamed that I'm so ordinary or relieved that I'm not abnormal. Have you got an answer to that question? <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, because uh, it kind of changes uh, every day. <laughs> because uh, <laughs> the answer changes every day. Because some, sometimes, even like um, if you frame it in, in the frame of uh, politics or literature, everything we've been discussing before together, uh, sometimes you, you are glad not to be like these people and sometimes you can feel a kind of uh, mourning. Why am I not conform? Sometimes it would be so uh, restful to be like uh, to be like the people that you don't like in a way. But uh, absolutely, it's um, it's 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 a, it's a strange feeling sometimes to feel excluded from something you don't want to belong to. It reminds me of Janet Winterson's um, novel, the title um, "Why Be Happy When You Can Be Normal." <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, I like it. It's sometimes it's really what comes to my mind. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Thank you so much for spending the time with us, Edouard. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was thank you for uh, your generosity. It's been and, so enjoyable. Uh, sorry for being so talkative with my uh, little problem. <laughs> no, I loved it. We could talk all night. We could talk all day. <laughs> thank you so much, Nadifa. Bye bye. So, thank you and take care of you. You too. Bye. You too. Bye bye. This podcast was produced by the House of Literature in Oslo. Remember to subscribe to our podcast and please check out our show notes for links to some of the things Edward and Nadifa talked about.